Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community General Osteopathic, and West Shore Hospitals. More information on our locations is available at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Yesterday, Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro appeared on Smart Talk to discuss what his office is doing to fight the opioid crisis across the state. Today, we have some real numbers of just how much of an impact heroin and prescription medications are having in Pennsylvania. And there are some surprises. Meanwhile, the Wolf administration has made combating the opioid crisis a priority. Joining us today is Dr. Rachel Levine, Pennsylvania's Acting Secretary of Health and Physician. General, Dr. Levine, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Also joining us is Joe Martin, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Healthcare Cost Containment Council. Mr. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. We're going to get into some of the specific numbers. I mean, this is a research brief that uh, was compiled by the Pennsylvania Healthcare Cost Containment Council, so it it is brief. There are only like a page and a half of, uh, of numbers here, but uh, some surprising ones and some important ones. So, Joe Martin, I want to start with you. What can be gathered from the research that you compiled? I mean, one of the things that um, I kind of took away from it is that this opioid crisis or epidemic, however it is described, is growing. Yes, the, uh, the numbers show that the hospitalizations in Pennsylvania for overdoses for heroin and for pain medications like Vicodin and Oxycodone um, are going up fairly dramatically. Uh, they've gone up 66% in just the last two years, and they've doubled uh, since 2013. Um, and what we're seeing is it, it's cutting across every demographic uh, category, race and ethnicity, age, gender, urban, rural, suburban, uh, these numbers are growing in every single area. Dr. Levine, I said that there are some surprises, and we'll talk about some of the specifics in just a few minutes. But what do you take away from these numbers? So the report is very valuable, and the numbers are very consistent with other data that we're seeing, and that includes the um, the overdose death reports, both from the DEA and the Pennsylvania Cornice Association, and also numbers that we're seeing in terms of emergency department visits and uh, saves and resuscitations using the medicine naloxone. So altogether, the data paints a picture that uh, the opioid epidemic is continuing to grow, and it is by far the biggest healthcare crisis that we see in Pennsylvania, and you could argue throughout the nation. You know, it's a simple question, but why? I mean, Joe Martin said to us uh, before the show that uh, uh, it's not like people aren't aware of this. I mm -hmm. mean, there has been a lot of publicity about it. We've talked about it often. So why is it continuing to grow? Well, the origins of this crisis go back 20 years or more, and it begins with the emphasis by federal regulatory authorities that hospitals and health systems and medical care professionals had to do a much better job assessing and treating pain not only acute pain, but chronic pain, and not only severe pain, but actually mild to moderate pain. Pain became, quote-unquote, the fifth vital sign. At the same time, uh, there was the development of extremely powerful, long-acting pain medications that were unfortunately marketed that would not be addictive to patients, and that has proven to be completely false. They are very addictive to patients. The third piece of the puzzle has been the influx of cheap, powerful, and plentiful heroin into the United States, and that has led to the overdose crisis that we see today. And the new, the new um, threat is synthetic opioids, such as right. fentanyl and even carfentanyl, which are hundreds of times more powerful and can lead to overdose and death. And you put that together, and that is the picture that we're seeing today. It is a multifaceted threat, and we, uh, the Wolf Administration is committed to addressing this, and it requires a multifaceted response. Okay. Agreed. It goes back 20 years, but we established that everyone knows about it. 
the Wolf Administration, states across the country. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of different organizations, agencies, uh, people that are trying to fight this very aggressively, but yet it still continues to grow. That's correct. Because of the complex nature of how it developed, both in terms of, uh, of pain medications and then this new influx of heroin and then fentanyl compounds, it, it, it really demands both a public health response as well as a public safety and law enforcement response. And that's the way the, the, the state and the Wolf Administration are responding. We also network with, uh, with the National Governance Association and other states as, as well as the federal government. And it is going to, unfortunately, take uh, time because it took 20 years to develop. It's going to take a significant period of time for uh, government and uh, public and private partnerships to be able to address and overcome this crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, Joe Martin, uh, I'm not going to tick through the numbers, but there are some significant numbers here. To you, when you got the results of this research brief, what stood out to you? Well, certainly what you mentioned before, which is despite the tremendous public awareness now of this problem, and despite all of the terrific efforts that are being made by state government, especially here in Pennsylvania, by providers, uh, by behavioral health uh, treatment providers, uh, the problem continues to get worse. Um, that is the really disturbing part, I believe. The other thing that we noticed, uh, to your point earlier about, um, or Dr. Levine's point about the dangers of fentanyl and other synthetics, is that we have seen the mortality rate get worse. Mm -hmm. So that suggests that people are coming into the hospital in much worse condition than they were before, which was bad enough to begin with. So uh, these problems just continue to get worse. I think that people have viewed this in the past as being either an urban problem, uh, a young problem, the target age that people often talk about is 25 to 44. Um, being uh, a problem that affects low-income people. But the numbers are showing that those things are all still true, um, but it's hitting every other age group as well. So while we see the numbers being big in urban areas, proportionally, the increases are spiking up much more significantly in rural and suburban areas. And let's talk about that. Uh, I have to admit that I was a little bit surprised that uh, your your research showed that 84% of the hospital admissions, and let me stop here by say, saying that you looked at hospital admissions rather than overdose deaths uh, in, in this report, um, but that 84%, over 84%, uh, were in urban areas, mostly in Philadelphia. reason that kind of surprised me is because we have heard so much about the suburbs and the rural areas of Pennsylvania where overdoses have occurred. But then when you look on a per capita basis, on a actually per 100,000 population basis, uh, some of the rural counties, even in our area here in central Pennsylvania, compare with Philadelphia, Lebanon, Perry, uh, Northumberland counties on a per 100,000 people rate. We're right up there with Philadelphia. Yeah, I, I think that uh, over the 4th of July weekend, as another example, in Lancaster County, right. they had a record number of admissions to the emergency room in Lancaster hospitals um, for overdoses. So we, we see it in all of these areas um, to address the issue of it being just young people. There's a report out uh, today by the inspector general, the U.S. inspector general, that, um, that reports that a half a million Medicare recipients, that's people over the age of 65, nationally have been prescribed too many opioids, according to the Centers for Disease Control. Um, so, again, it's not just a young problem. It's not just a an urban problem. Um, it's not just a problem related to low income. Dr. Levine, and I'm jumping around on you because there's a lot of information here, but, uh, you know, when we're talking about rural and urban areas, is there a difference in how we fight this opioid crisis in urban, suburban, and rural areas? I think there are similarities and, and there are differences. Um, in, and the data that you're talking about uh, is, is very important. So the, the death rate in terms of overdoses from the coroner's report in Cambria County per capita, per 100,000, is almost the same as it is in, in inner Philadelphia. Um, so I think that we have to – some of the economic issues are, are different. I think some of the uh, – 
the cultural issues are different, and so um, and that gets involved with what are called the social determinants of health. So, but I think that overall we have to emphasize four priorities. One is, and this is whether it's urban or rural. Uh, one is prevention. And prevention, uh, working um, in terms of decreasing the amount of opioid prescriptions, I like to call that opioid stewardship, in that opioids are necessary medicines if you break your leg or you have chronic cancer pain, uh, but we have to learn to use opioids more carefully and judiciously. We have to emphasize rescue with the medication naloxone, the life-saving medicine that first responders and even family members can have um, uh, to resuscitate someone who might be suffering from the disease of addiction. Then we have to emphasize the referral for treatment, which is a warm handoff. A warm handoff is a facilitated referral of a patient either after an overdose or if they're diagnosed in the office to treatment, and then we have to expand treatment. And so Governor Wolf is committed with really all of the agencies, all hands on deck, uh, to addressing this. We do have new funding from the 21st Century Cures Grant, which is a, a federal grant. We have $26.5 million this year uh, to, to expand all of those different aspects of prevention and treatment. And um, one of the most important initiatives is to expand um, access to what is called medication-assisted treatment, which in combination with counseling and therapy can really help people suffering from the disease of addiction. In this report, there really is no good news. But, okay, we're looking for snippets of good news. And you have said in the past that uh, there are a few things that we can look at and say, all right, here's an area where we're improving. Talk about that. Well, so I think that we are improving somewhat um, in terms of the amount of prescriptions that physicians are writing for opioid pain medications, um, that opioid stewardship that I talked about. So through um, efforts in Pennsylvania with educating medical students, with continuing education for healthcare providers, as well as prescribing guidelines, and the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, and nationally as well, we are starting to bend the curve in terms of the amount of opioids prescribed. Nationally, decreased about 18% over, over several years. That's 2015 data. We're hoping that that trend will continue and even become more robust, and we will continue to bend that curve in terms of the amount of opioids prescribed for acute and chronic pain, utilizing those type of guidelines and then um, using alternatives uh, to, to treat pain. Uh, but at the same time, we have to rescue people who have, uh, who have overdosed. We have to get them into treatment, and we have to expand treatment slots. So again, uh, we have a, a new initiative called Pennsylvania coordinated medication-assisted treatment. Uh, this will be, uh, we have seed money through the 21st Century Cures Grant, and we're hoping to expand um, that access to state-of-the-art treatment um, uh, in, over the next year. When you say alternatives, uh, I have to say that one of the first things that popped into my mind was medical marijuana. Is that an alternative, considered an alternative? So medical marijuana can be an alternative to some patients with chronic pain. And so there is some evidence that states that have a medical marijuana program have lower rates of opioid prescriptions and actually lower rates of overdoses. But I do want to caution people. We're not going to solve the opioid crisis um, with, with medical marijuana. It is not a magic bullet. It is not a quick fix. It'll be one more tool in the toolbox to help patients with chronic pain. You mentioned naloxone also, uh, which you know has the brand name Narcan. A lot of people refer to it as Narcan. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there have been lives saved of people who uh, have overdosed uh, on, on heroin. I don't, I don't know about other uh, medications or other uh, drugs, but uh, there have been lives saved. But has it done anything to reduce the number of overdoses? Uh, it hasn't reduced the number of overdoses, but it's reduced the number of overdose deaths. Right, right. And, and so, I mean, and that, that makes and sense. And that's absolutely critical. So everyone, you know, we have to get past the stigma associated with addiction. Uh, uh, addiction is a medical condition. It is a chronic relapsing brain disease. And suffer someone suffering from that addiction, whether it's to prescription opioids or to heroin, might overdose. Um, everyone's life deserves to be saved. Everyone deserves a chance for recovery. And so if we if we can keep someone alive, then there's there's hope for them to to get appropriate treatment. It's impossible to get someone into treatment 
if they die of an overdose? Well, you see, the reason I ask that question, I mean, it, it sounds like a dumb question in that obviously we save lives, but uh, I just wondered whether uh, uh, or a lot of people or more people were seeking treatment after almost dying from an overdose. I mean, we've heard those horror stories mm -hmm. about uh, uh, EMTs or first responders or hospitals that uh, have had to use Narcan two or three times on the same person. So that's that's correct. Um, but again, uh, let's use a heart attack model. If someone has a second or third heart attack, we don't question whether we're going to revive them or not. Um, we resuscitate them, and then we do we work even harder to get that person the treatment that they need for their medical condition. And the same in terms of naloxone and overdoses. But I understand the concern uh, for first responders. I understand the concern for family members and physicians. And so we have developed a very robust warm handoff clinical pathway. This is a facilitated referral pathway for emergency departments to use in collaboration with the county drug and alcohol authorities to work very hard to get every patient who might be in the emergency department after uh, naloxone use, after that resuscitation, to get them into the life-saving substance abuse treatment that they need. And then we have to expand the treatment slots, which we've done with the Centers of Excellence, and we will expand further with this coordinated medication-assisted treatment program. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine. Our guests during this portion of the program are Dr. Rachel Levine, Pennsylvania's Acting Secretary of Health and Physician General, and Joe Martin, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Healthcare Cost Containment Council. The Pennsylvania Healthcare Cost Containment Council has recently put out a research brief on the opioid crisis in Pennsylvania, hospital admissions in particular. And we're going to talk more about uh, prescription medication as well in a few minutes. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1 800 729 7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Again, that phone number, 1 800 729 7532. We'll take a few phone calls in a few minutes, but uh, we had an e email here from Tom and Carlisle, and just kind of uh, related to what we were just discussing, he says, I'm an EMS, and our overdose calls, as you know, have skyrocketed. It's so bad that the Department of Health has just revised our protocols so that we may administer an increased dosage of naloxone in the field. That is correct. Um, so because of the strength of the heroin that we're seeing in communities and because of these synthetic opioids such as fentanyl, um, it often will require a higher dose of naloxone and sometimes multiple doses of naloxone or Narcan to be able to revive the person. Um, so it's very challenging uh, for first responders, and I certainly applaud all of their efforts uh, in terms of life-saving um, actions that they do for patients. We, we've talked to a number of them uh, over the last few months, and, you know, they are, they are just, I don't know, they're, they're, they describe it as it's an everyday occurrence, you know, more than once almost in, in some areas, and it really seems to even have a personal impact on, on them. Um, let's take a phone call from Bill in Lancaster. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Scott Good morning, and Bill. doctors. Um, something has uh, been playing on my mind. The doctors are doing a very good job of trying to control things, which is kind of like putting a Band-Aid on somebody stabbing you with a sword. It doesn't answer the real question. Now, there probably are some older adults or even younger ones that have had pain problems and been overdosed with the uh, overprescribing of the opiates. But there are still, and you see the ads on television, do you know who else is taking your medicines? That's a hint at younger people doing this to get high, just like they use other drugs. The problem is, why are they doing this? Do we have a real mental health crisis that are driving younger people to do this? If you solve that, I believe you'd solve the entire problem. Hey, thank you very much for your call, Bill. Before we answer that question, uh, Joe, I wanted to go to you about average age. There's a different average age for 
heroin overdoses and prescription medication overdoses, and, and there's a real difference there. Yeah, the, the heroin overdoses skew to the younger population for sure, um, and the, uh, the pain medications skew to the older populations. Uh, again, however, though, we're seeing increases flipping. So um, we're seeing more older patients, uh, increases in heroin overdoses, and we're seeing more, uh, to the caller's point, we're seeing more increases among younger people for pain medication, um, which suggests that they're getting it perhaps from their parents. That's certainly one thing that we hear a lot about. Um, the the other impact that it has and it relates to uh, the financial metrics, we, we talk about this primarily as a social problem, but there is an economic cost to this as well. So the hospitalizations we looked at, and these are only people that are admitted to the hospital. They are not, we do not have the authority to collect the data for people who are treated, stabilized, and released and never get into the hospital. Um, and the legislature is trying to address that issue. Um, but the, the impact uh, overall for heroin, which is primarily Medicaid, is about $27 million in one year just for that small subset of hospitalizations. Um, the pain medication issue uh, skews more towards medic Medicare. Uh, again, both of these are public sector programs supported by both our state budget on the Medicaid side, federal budget on the Medicare side, uh, all hitting the taxpayers in one way or another. So, Dr. Levine, let's go back to Bill's original question. Do we have a mental health crisis? Now, granted, uh, we can go back 40, 50 years, and the question was, why are people abusing drugs, using drugs? But do we have a mental health crisis? Well, uh, the causes of addiction are really complex, and they're, and they're multifaceted. So one of the, the um, ideological factors for addiction is biological. It, there tends to be a, a genetic predisposition for patients you know, to have addiction. It can run in the family. There's also, however, um, uh, social uh, factors and environmental factors that can drive someone to addiction. And so you put them together and it can lead someone down that road. So certainly mental health issues, as the gentleman was talking about, can, can be one of the factors that can lead someone into addiction. I think that young people, um, adolescents, do have significant mental health issues in terms of depression, um, in, in terms of anxiety, etc. I think that we live in a very complex, <laughs> difficult world uh, in terms of their access to technology and to social media. And I, I do agree that that is one of the factors that can lead someone to addiction and one of the factors that we do have to address as we look at this crisis. Let's take a phone call from Heather in Mechanicsburg. And uh, speaking of money, I think Heather wants to address that. Heather, you're on the air. Hi. I'm, I'm sorry if I sound mean or rude, but I'm tired of my taxpaying dollars paying for this stuff. I'm tired of going to my own doctor and being drug tested because I have it's now a law and and I have to pay an extra hundred dollars for that drug test for medicine I need. I'm tired of these kids having these Narcan parties where whoever overdoses the most and dies the, as many times as they can, they get they get called the monster of the party and it's rewarded. And I don't understand why I have to pay for that. And we don't lock these people up the second they overdose. We will take someone to jail for marijuana or DUI, but we won't take them to jail when they overdose on heroin or prescription drugs. It's disgusting, and I'm tired of paying for it. I don't have any sympathy anymore. Heather, thank you very much for your call. Want to respond to that? Well, I understand the public and the community's frustration. Um, this is a serious public health crisis. Um, it has it has a complex origin. There's no easy answers, and we're in it for the long haul. You know, I, I'm a positive and optimistic person, and I am really hopeful that over the course of the next number of years, five years or so, we'll we'll make progress, and then in, in ten years that we'll have um, a, a much better handle on this. But it's going to take years to overcome that. And I do understand the public's um, and the community's frustration with how long it's taking and, and the amount of um, effort and, um, and resources that 
that it's taking. However, um, again, I would go back to this is addiction is a medical condition. It is not it is not a moral failing. Um, a lot of people get addicted, as has been discussed through uh, because of, uh, of pain medications. And I think that we have to show um, not a, a compassion um, for the patient suffering from the addiction and might be overdosing. There's a public health response. There is also a public safety and law enforcement response in terms of arresting the dealers. And, uh, and so as we get, get a better handle on the, on, the, on the demand and start to hopefully decrease the demand for these drugs, then the Attorney General's Office and the Pennsylvania State Police and law enforcement can able to arrest, arrest the real criminals, which are the drug dealers. You could hear the frustration in Heather's voice. Uh, you know, something she mentioned, Narcan parties. I have no idea how widespread that is, but it has occurred. And that there are those who uh, will, we've heard stories of people who have purchased Narcan in case they overdose, but then continue to use. I mean, it is not an easy problem to solve, but you can understand why people are frustrated when they I hear stories like absolutely that. understand the frustration, uh, and that's why we have to do a, a even better job with, with these warm handoffs, with the referrals to treatment, that if someone is resuscitated, um, they're brought to the emergency department, that they are uh, that, that they're immediately brought to treatment. Uh, for Again, let's go back to the heart attack model. If someone has a myocardial infarction or a heart attack, uh, they're not resuscitating the emergency department, and then the physician comes in and says, Mr. Smith, you almost died. We're going to give you a, a couple of referrals, and we're going to discharge you now, and we really should call the cardiologist this week. The cardiologist comes in, and the person gets intensive treatment. That's the kind of model that we want for patients after an overdose is they get immediately intensive treatment to help them overcome, overcome their disease. Mm-hmm. Let's take another phone call from Mike in Harrisburg. Mike, you're on the air. You know, uh, I've been looking at this problem for quite a while, doing a lot of reading, and it occurs to me that most of the overdoses are not because of heroin. They're because of stuff in heroin, fentanyl. Modest proposal. If you really want to save lives and save money, why don't we make heroin available at a pharmacy and controlled dose for addicts, and then we can direct them into therapeutic regimen or whatever. The, the real problem we got is this war on drugs. And the war is on not on the dealers so much. It's on, it's on the users. And the problem is, is the fentanyl and the poison and the heroin. I think it's time we grew up and recognized that the war on drugs is a failure. It's been a complete failure. And they need to, one, legalize marijuana, because if a lot of people had marijuana, they might not be doing fentanyl-laced heroin. That's just the reality of it. Hey, Mike, thank you very much for your call. A couple issues he brings up there. I know you can't address what the legislature could do with as far as legalization or anything like that, and that would be difficult in a state like Pennsylvania, really anywhere. Heroin has not been legalized anywhere. Marijuana, that's a different story. But fentanyl, and I was curious, Dr. Levine, when you said earlier that uh, naloxone is effective in treating those who have uh, overdosed from fentanyl? So, yes. Um, fentanyl is an opioid. Now, what you have to remember, and all naloxone does is block the opioid receptors so that it doesn't, it doesn't affect the brain. Um, however, because fentanyl is so strong, fentanyl is 50 to 100 times more powerful than morphine. You're going to need multiple doses of naloxone to be able to revive the person and then keep them revived. We even have seen in Pennsylvania a substance called carfentanil. Now, carfentanil is literally an opioid that was developed for elephants, and it is 100 times more powerful than fentanyl. So if you do the math, it is up to 10,000 times more powerful than, than morphine. So it isn't that it, it is resistant to naloxone. It's that you might need much higher doses to be able to overcome that strong of an opioid drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Martin, you I read a quote where you said that you were surprised. One of the things that, that you were surprised at with the, this research was the pain medication overdoses. That's something that doesn't get a whole lot of attention in the media, but uh, talk about that, what, what you found. Well, we again, we see that um, the overdoses are increasing uh, in, in every uh, category. So... Um, Again, I think it speaks to a lot of the misconceptions that we have about this problem, um, that it's only um, heroin users that are 
uh, overdosing or dying. Um, and um, it really tends to kind of take our focus away from how broad this problem really is. So, you know, I understand one of the previous calls frustration with, you know, the system and so on, uh, people getting high. But when we look at um, mapping clusters across the country and you see where the rate of heroin deaths is the most dramatic is in um, southwestern Pennsylvania, Kentucky, West Virginia, down that strip of Appalachia. And the, the school of thought there is that these are areas with uh, large numbers of um, dangerous occupations. So you have people in heavy manufacturing, farming, mining, and so on. Now, these are people who are just making a living, and they're working in very difficult jobs. Uh, they get hurt on the job. Um, they're prescribed uh, pain medications. Um, the pain medications run out. They become addicted to them, and they turn to heroin. Um, and so you see entire communities in some of these small areas in particular, entire communities where the, enti the entire community is addicted um, to drugs. Um, so I think we have to be careful about looking at one particular aspect as this is a typical, uh, this is a typical drug user or this is a typical addict um, because we're finding more and more that it's our children, it's our neighbors, it's our colleagues at work um, for you know, all the complex reasons that Dr. Levine so uh, elegantly laid out um, have become addicted. Let's take another phone call from Steve in York. Steve, you're on the air. Hi, um, I'm a pain management physician. Um, I, I see one of the issues, um, I've watched this, this uh, issue go back and forth over my career, uh, from liberalization of uh, opioids to uh, tightening up of opioids, and now, now being monitored, physicians being monitored closely for their prescribing. Uh, one of the with, um, with Hello, are you there? Uh, for some reason, we just lost the call. I don't know whether that was uh, a cell phone or what, but it just just cut out. Uh, do you want to say something? Well, Levine? sure. Um, uh, I think that um, the, the, the physician is correct. We have seen um, trends in terms of uh, of use of opioids. I think that the trend that I spoke about earlier ha has been the, the most recent predominant trend, which was a significant increase um, in opioids over the last twenty years. And now we're seeing we're starting to bend the curve and to and to decrease that. He was referring, I think, to the prescription drug monitoring program. So the, the prescription drug monitoring program is a program through the Department of Health where we, uh, uh, we monitor uh, uh, physicians' prescriptions as well as pharmacists' dispensing of, of opioids. And one of the main purposes is that a prescriber will see if someone might be suffering from the disease of addiction going to multiple providers to get multiple prescriptions. Doctor shopping. Yeah. Doctor shopping. And then the, the goal is um, not to just send that person out of your office, but to to then to make a, an intervention and then that warm handoff. And we are developing a, a warm handoff pathway for use with the prescription drug monitoring program. That person is dependent and possibly addicted uh, to these opioids and will need um, intense treatment to be able to overcome their medical problems. So the PDMP, uh, Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, is a new, very powerful tool um, in, uh, in our toolbox to address this epidemic. Dr. Rachel Levine is Pennsylvania's Acting Secretary of Health and Physician General. Joe Martin, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Healthcare Cost Containment Council, will have a copy or a link to the report on our website, WITF.org. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks very much, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. And I just wanted to mention that our previous segment talking about the opioid crisis is part of uh, WITF's Transforming uh, Health Project. For more on the opioid addiction crisis, plus a deeper look at the changing tide of health care, check out WITF's Transforming Health. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and WellSpan Health. Now, I want to switch gears here and uh, talk about another 
another very important topic in our society, and that is education. Education in this country, when you think about it, really hasn't changed much in the past hundred years. That's even though the world around schools has, and certainly technology has progressed, especially in the last 20 years. Today's high school seniors have probably been exposed to computers and mobile phones for most of their lives, maybe their entire lives. The careers and jobs they choose will certainly involve technology. So what are schools doing to utilize technology in the classroom? Joining us for this discussion is Josh DeSantis, professor of education at your college of Pennsylvania. Professor DeSantis, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Also, Michael Snell, superintendent of the Central York School District. Mr. Snell, welcome to the program. Thank you, sir. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I have to admit that uh, I stole that language about uh, the classroom not changing a whole lot in the past 100 years. Really, the classroom has changed, but the way we teach students, we grade students, we uh, measure success in the, in the classroom, that's what really hasn't changed. Let's talk about that a little bit, because obviously someone 100 years ago would not recognize today's classroom, but what areas hasn't changed? Well, this is a really important issue, Scott. We really appreciate you uh, giving us this opportunity to speak about this issue. Um, Schools exist to prepare children for the society that they're going to inhabit. Um, So we're really interested in making sure there's alignment between the things that schools do to prepare kids for the reality that they're going to inhabit and... um, and, uh, and, and so uh, there, there are technologies that are reshaping um, our opportunity to do that. And it's really important that we make sure the skills and, and content we present are ultra-relevant to kids. But how is the classroom, or maybe I shouldn't say the classroom, how is uh, education, when I say it hasn't changed a whole lot in 100 years, how hasn't it changed in 100 years? I would say that uh, we begin talking about when school begins. And so whether it's Labor Day before or after Labor Day, we start at, at you know, the uh, late summer and we finish up by the time the crops need to be picked. And, you know, we're still stuck with the agrarian calendar. And so, you know, gone are those days. And yet we still subscribe to that. Um, education isn't broken by any means. It's still wonderfully effective and more effective than we've ever been. But it might be facing obsolescence if we don't sort of change the way things uh, are, are patterned. The other real big industrial-based pattern, if you will, are the way that we organize our learners. So you're in third grade for 180 days, and that might be right for a majority of them, but not for all of them. We know third graders should be working in fourth grade. Some of them might be struggling and should be in second grade, and yet we stack and rack and, and, and sentence our learners to 180 days based on their manufacture date, which, you know, you're eight years old. Oh, well, you should be in third grade. That, that's not necessarily true for all, for all of our learners. I, I, I kind of had to laugh a little bit there when you used the word sentence. Uh, there are probably a lot of kids out there saying, see, they know it too. <laughs> Why are we so slow to change in education? I think we're a, a product of our past success. I mean, uh, again, I think education is terribly effective. Public education is, is wonderfully effective and more effective than we've ever been. Um, and yet we're stuck in this sort of comfort mode of 180 days um, and the way that we've always done things. And so I think it's just a familiarity. Um, the hardest part about changing public education today is that our learners' parents all remember what public education was for them. And so to sort of build this puzzle without the box of the puzzle, it, it's sort of new territory. And everybody is familiar with the way things have always been been done. Yeah, and, you know, again, we all have memories that uh, would, when you describe, I, I, I can remember when I was probably in second grade hearing about the new math. Then when my children went to school, I heard about the new math. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't the same new math. But again, and, and the complaints were, well, this is how we learned it. What was wrong with that? We got we get the answers correctly. Is that what you're talking about? That the people and this is one of the things because so many people, everyone has experienced it. It's like, well, it worked for us. Why doesn't it continue to work? Well, some of the structures that Michael was describing were built to suit the needs of a society that existed a hundred years ago. Um, so we needed uh, we needed to pre- prepare factory workers uh, to work on a line, uh, and uh, our schools evolved. That uh, in a ways that mimicked those structures, but our society's changed, um, and um, the the nature of the relationship between students and the content has changed because we're putting devices in their hands, and education, in order to remain effective, has to. Um, you know, arrive at that reality as well. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about those devices. Let's talk about technology. Uh, in, in broad terms, what are schools or how are schools using technology 
with today's students? I think there there are a couple of ways. I mean, all school districts are working hard to uh, to integrate technology, and so there we look at it in sort of you know three constructs, if you will. There are times technology shouldn't be used. It's about the human element. It's about the teacher and the learner in that classroom, um, and so sometimes we shouldn't use it. There are other times that technology should be used as a tool. When you provide a device and internet connectivity, you provide the sum of all human knowledge. And over two billion potential teachers, some are good, some are bad, and that's 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 just reality. And so sometimes it should be used as a tool, and then trying to identify when technology can serve as the teacher. When can it help teach, remediate, enrich, and accelerate uh, the learning experience? And so sometimes it shouldn't be used. Sometimes it should be used as a tool. If you think about all the things that we had to remember in our day or the game Trivial Pursuit, those days are over. You can access any information and, and quickly search for an answer. Um, and then there are times it can serve as a teacher. So we look at it from those three aspects. Mm-hmm. It wasn't very long ago, and I'm thinking 10 or 15 years, where it almost was revolutionary to suggest that uh, every student would have a laptop computer. Uh, you know, school districts were trying to find ways to pay for that technology. Today, it's almost a given, isn't it? 54% of K-12 students in the United States have access to a mobile device in their school issued by their school. Okay. Um, I, I th- I, I'm surprised it's that low. Well, that's that's kindergarten through through senior year, and we're seeing that increase. And that was last year. And every year, new, you know, every school is, is adopting new technologies into the classroom, and they really reshape the game. Speaking of the flexibility that Michael was speaking about, um, you know, if you have this kind of approach where some instruction still occurs in a traditional setting where a teacher connects with a student face-to-face and, and some of it's happening in more flexible ways, um, it's really uh, helping us to reimagine um, how learning occurs in schools. You know, we are used to the concept of a student arriving at 730 right, right. in the morning and they leave at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And school is what happens between those hours. Um, but these new technologies are allowing us to, um, to be more flexible in our approach and are reinventing our whole concept of what school is. And so schools like Michael's at Central York School District are much more flexible, um, and uh, you're seeing students learning and coming to school at different times and having um, multimodal learning where some learning is face-to-face and some of it's happening in blended or online environments all in the same school day. That is one thing that... uh, Is it Dr. Snell, by the way? Yes, sir. Dr. Snell, that is one of the things that... uh, I, I was interested in what, what you were saying about the individual learning habits that some students should be in second grade, some who are in third grade for 180 days maybe should be in fourth grade already. Um, and again, I'm, I'm going back to my days in elementary school, for example, you had three reading groups. You know, you named them after an animal or something like that yes, or a color. Uh, and But what it was was those who were not reading as well, those were kind of in the middle, and those who were, were reading pretty well. Today, that would probably never happen. But with this technology, it seems as though you can give more individual instruction rather than just grouping 10 kids here, 10 kids there, 10 kids there. Well, I, w- I would, the only thing I would say is that I think some of those reading groups still continue called balanced really? literacy. Really? And so, so they are. And, and so we look at, at customized learning by having a single conversation with that learner and their family and to say, would you like to stay in second grade because you are second grade by your birth date? But if you're really working at a third grade level, we can either modify that in the second grade classroom or maybe we send you to the third grade classroom for part of the day. And so we look at it somewhat of a, of a logistics issue. I have 5,800 learners in our school system. Do I I know where each and every one is at any given time. And, and we look at it from a, a GPS. You are here. And if you finish second grade, we can start you in third grade today, even though you're in second grade. Do you want to stay here? Should you go to third grade? We have some middle school learners that start today at the high school. We have some third graders or, you know, sixth graders who might go to the next building. And, and so we're, we're starting, we, we call them divergent learners. They're just off the typical 180 days. And so technology can help manage that. It can serve as a teacher for a period of time. It can serve as a tool, um, but also the proximity of where you learn. If, if physically a family and that learner wants to go to the next grade level, why not? W- where is the rule that says you can't do that other than it's logistics? Mm-hmm. And Josh, you, uh, you're teaching tomorrow's teachers. And I'm curious. I mean, they're still, most of them are, are probably still pretty young mm-hmm. and have experienced a lot of this technology. But how is it different for Uh, you know, instructing tomorrow's teachers, what are they used to? What are they thinking about uh, what what they're going to be doing in a classroom? We prepare our teachers to differentiate what they're doing on individual learner needs. Uh, And that's an important value that's at the heart of of one of the things we do at your college. Um, 
these tools, uh, they belong to a class of technologies called mass customized learning or cognitive assistance. And they're finding their way into all sorts of uh, you know, nooks and crannies in our lives. Um, what they enable a teacher to do is to draw from a much wider range of data to make an informed choice about what a learner needs. Um, so, you know, we still have mixed abilities uh, within our classrooms. We can actually tailor instruction, not just based off of what that teacher remembers about that student, but off of their performance on standardized tests or their performance on quizzes earlier in the year or on their attendance data or on their learning style. And we can, we can do a much better job of fine-tuning instruction. And we're readying our teachers at your college to harness those tools to be much more effective. Okay, you brought up standardized tests, and you know that had to be a topic that uh, would come up. Uh, no one seems to like the idea, but there has to be a way to measure progress in uh, what what a student has learned or hasn't learned over, over the years. Uh, how has technology, when it's meshed with this at the end of the year, certain grades are going to get standardized tests, be measured? I mean, the criticism, and you're well familiar with it, the teachers give very often is we're teaching to the test. What we really need is we need students who are critical thinkers. And there may be people who would listen to us today and say, well, using that technology, use these devices, are we somehow not adding to that critical thinking skill? I know there's a lot of questions wrapped up into that, but bring in the aspect of how technology relates to standardized tests and also critical thinking skills. I don't. Um, I won't. I don't know that there's a great connection. Um, ultimately, when you sit down and you take a standardized test in April and and um, you fill in a Scantron bubbled filled you know piece of paper, um, that's a, a a snapshot in time. Um, and I think the the over reliance upon that to uh, assess or evaluate or grade schools or grade teachers, I think it's sort of run its course. I get the fact that it's a it's a requirement, and public schools follow along with that. Technology avails um, our learners the sum of all human knowledge at their fingertips, and yet they're not allowed to use that. Um, I would challenge anybody listening, and, and even you, to say, you know, when was the last time you sat at your world of work and filled out a hundred multiple choice questions and determined your sum total, your sum worth? Um, teachers are saints. Um, they're fabulous people, and they should shouldn't be evaluated. Um, but to your question about, you know, how do you evaluate schools, I think it's one factor of, amongst the many myriad of other factors. Co-curricular participation, SAT scores, you could take a look at any number of things. Um, we have to, in public education, look at those things that are hard to measure, not those things that are easy to measure. A standardized test is easy assessment. That isn't the sum total of that learner, that teacher, or that school district. We are much more than that test. What about technology, though, and whether it takes away from critical thinking? The technologies that we're using in classroom and some of the ones we're discussing this morning actually enhance critical thinking okay. because they position students to create. Um, they democratize uh, knowledge construction. Um, they transition students from being passive consumers of knowledge. Uh, maybe man, many of us remember. No memorization. No, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now they're using the knowledge that they have access to to create something, and that gives them agency and control. Um, and that's exactly the sort of innovative entrepreneurial spirit that we want our graduates to have. You sent uh, a link to an article uh, to me about uh, Pokemon Go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was a fad that uh, I don't know if it's run its course or not, but uh, there were a lot of people who were complaining about, uh, oh, look, at the, this is what uh, so many kids are doing today. But this article was pointing out that uh, that actually was a good educational tool. Yeah, when we look at these... Um, Pokemon Go was part of a class of tools called augmented reality, mm -hmm. and um, it's it's a tool that uh, marketers are using, but classroom teachers are using it to create much more engaging experiences. If if you see kids out on walks and parks looking for Pokemon with their phone, um, why not bring that into your classroom and bring that sort of excitement and engagement to create a, a more effective learning opportunity for your kids? Let's take a phone call from. Let's see here, who do we have on the line? Uh, Bob is in Harrisburg. Bob, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Good morning. Good morning. I want to make a quick argument to you guys, and that is that the educational apparatus is completely flawed from its onset. And that is, what I see is children are about play. And when children play to their natural extinction of the urge to play, they then can become available for academic learning. Instead, when we put children into schools, we demand that they work your homework, your schoolwork, what are you working on now, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, little factory workers. We completely ignore childhood, and therefore we drive out the instinct for curiosity about the world. 
when you get kids by 10th grade in high school, they're bored beyond belief. No wonder they're resorting to opioids. I mean, the thing is, if we converted grade schools into play centers where children could play and let children play and learn at their own capacity because they learn through play, instead, our school system is a flawed apparatus, and all you guys are doing is maintaining it. I'm sorry. Thank you very much for your call. Dr. Snell? I, I would. Um, I, I oftentimes suggest that it's even earlier than 10th grade. And so we, we say, you know, at what point do learners sort of disengage from, from their schooling experience? And I would say it's, it's you know, late intermediate middle school. They understand how schooling is done. They sit, they get the worksheet, they take the test, they understand how to get the A, and they move on. And so really in mass customized learning, we realize that everybody learns at a different rate and has a different learning style. And our job is to tap into your learning style, your curiosity. Um, and what we call really the flipped classroom isn't what you do at home versus what you do at school. The flipped classroom is how do we have our learners own their learning called student agency? How do we have them really involved in somewhat, some say, some motivation in their schoolwork each and every day? I think that will get at the, the, the and lessen the automatons, if you will, of the factory-based model. You just don't sit and get. It's about your voice and your choice in, in your public education. There's research that supports the caller's point, exactly. Um, children arrive to us in kindergarten at their most creative peak. Um, and then there's been, you know, there's, there's ways to assess creativity. You can actually chart the decline of students' creativity as they move from kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth grade on up. Um, and that's exactly the sort of opportunity that the emerging technologies that we're discussing today can help us um, uh, change. Uh, we can actually position students to be creative using these tools. Something that has gotten a lot of publicity, mostly because it was used as a showbiz thing, but IBM's Watson for education. Talk about the, the use of that. We, we have um, uh, begun work with uh, Watson. It's called Watson and Light. It's it's the IBM solution. And you you can see, you know, tel- television commercials, Watson's footprint in any number of sectors. We really think that uh, over a 13-year experience in which our learners are with us, the Watson technology, cognitive analytics, will, will any given time, like a GPS device, say that you are here. It will tell the teacher exactly where they're at. It will tell the parents. Most importantly, it will tell the learner, you are here working in third grade, but you're really on fifth grade work. And so we really look at, at Watson to come forward and, and, and really utilize that sort of GPS idea, if you will. You know, we didn't have near enough time today. There's so many other things that uh, we, we have to talk about. I'd like to have the two of you back on the program if, if you're okay Absolutely. with that. Because uh, there's some other things that I want to bring up. I mean, we had some listeners who talked about uh, home environment, uh, income levels, social status, things like that. And we can bring all that in and talk about technology as well. But I uh, want to thank uh, both of you for being with us today. Dr. Michael Snell, Superintendent of the Central York School District. Josh DeSantis, a Professor of Education at York College of Pennsylvania. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Coming up on tomorrow's program, talk about health care again. And also, there's a conference this weekend, and uh, Harrisburg has a big part in this. Negro League Baseball, that's coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, so be sure to tune in. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for 16 clinical trials. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart.